Support for Podcast by Night comes from Midnight Syndicate. To find out more about their gothic horror instrumental music, please visit MidnightSyndicate.com. And welcome back, everybody, to Podcast by Night, the wonderful podcast that brings you the mysterious world of darkness. And this time we are going through, as always, Vampire the Masquerade. Yay! Yay! How you doing, Jen? I'm doing all right. How are you, John? I am fine. Uh, actually, I'm better than fine. We just had our game last night. and boy, Yes, we did. That was a doozy. That was a doozy. Oh, yes. You had a, a underling who managed to make me angry, and I got to storm off in the hut. It was amazing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the drama never stops at a, at a Vampire the Masquerade LARP. Which, oh, the drama. Oh, the drama, which is exactly why we're doing this podcast. So that you, too, can get in on this drama. It's like Melrose Place with fangs and a lot less explosions. Or, no, maybe... Maybe just as many explosions and a lot less sleeping with each other. That's true, even though that does also sometimes happen. But remember, no sexy times. <laughs> no, it's all about sexy times. Sorry, I couldn't help oh, myself. Oh, oh, that was a terrible segue. It's a terrible segue. <laughs> That's right. We're, this time we're going to be discussing vampiric society or sects. That's S-E-C-T-S. Yes. Jen, you, I, I remember you, you said you had the uh, definition for that. Why don't you tell everybody what that is? Yes. So according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, um, a sect is a group of people with somewhat different religious beliefs, typically regarding regarded as heretical, from those of a larger group to which they belong. Now, amongst vampires, they aren't particularly religious, in, in the grand scheme of things, but vampiric society is a larger group, and within the that larger group, there are smaller groups that have coalesced together around particular beliefs, and they very much often do not agree with other vampires who coalesce together to create other beliefs. That's right. Remember, uh, everybody, where you used to be human once, so you do have the culture you came from circumstances surrounding your unlife, your whatever your embrace may be. There are certain clans that have prejudices that you either can overcome or completely ignore. Exactly. And being formally human, you still kind of think with a little bit of a human brain. Humans are, by our nature, social creatures. Uh, we create societies. And vampires are social creatures as well. They kind of have to be when they feed off of humans. If humans are social creatures, they have to be social creatures too because that's what they're dealing with all the time. And I think it's very easy for us to assume a vampire is sort of like like tigers. You know, they go and they are lone hunters who have their territory and nobody else crosses into their territory. And, you know, they, they like to live as individuals. And yes, there are those vampires who prefer to live life on their own rules, but for the most part, most vampires ascribe to some form of society, 
whatever that society looks like. Exactly. So, yeah, you've got your preconceived notions. You've got your societies that you built up. And, and vampires are no different. They have different ideologies. Uh, you know, are we going to be more domineering? Are we not? Are we going to be try to blend in with the humans for our own safety? What is the nature of being a vampire? You know, that's a big divide amongst vampire society. What does it mean to be a vampire? And what it, does being a vampire look like? That's a massive divide in vampire society. Right. So in all this talk about societies, I've... As Jen put on in the our little outline here, uh, the best place to begin is at the beginning. That's the very best place to start. And at the beginning, for vampires, well, there was a time before there was ever any sex of vampires. In fact, vampiric sex are actually a fairly new invention amongst vampires. Uh, for many, many, many millennia, there wasn't really much in the way of organization. Vampires have their own myths and legends about where they came from and how they came to be. And depends on where you came from uh, and the culture you grew up in as to what the legends happen to be. But one of the more prevalent um, legends about vampires and their origins it comes from a more Judeo-Christian background. This is the one that's common in certain corners of Europe. Um, and that is the idea that vampires are all descended from the biblical Cain, as in Cain and Abel. And that Cain, he was made a vampire, and then he created some childer, and then he went and found a city for him and his kids to live in. And then his kids embraced some kids. And then they all lived in the city for a while, and it was all great, and it was all happy, until somebody did something that pissed somebody else off, and then there was conflict, and then that first city got destroyed. That seems like a running running theme. Exactly, because then they tried this all over again. Cain ah. decided to peace out, because he got sick and tired of his dysfunctional family, and uh, he peaced out, and the the members that were left created yet a new city. So this is a second go at the first experiment. And guess what happened? Somebody did something to piss somebody off? And yeah, the whole thing went to hell again in a handbasket. This is a running theme amongst vampires, if you haven't noticed. So the second city gets completely destroyed. And this time by flood. And... Those that survive had to pick up the pieces. Those, the ones that survived are actually considered the founders of each clan. But we don't know much about them or the societies that they created afterwards. It depends on what political camp and modern knights you kind of affiliate yourself with as to whether you, first of all, even believe those legends. And second of all, how you believed it all went down. But there's no clear consensus concise understanding of what happened in the past because frankly most of all those vampires are either dead or, or asleep no one's seen them around for a very long time and if they're that old you, you really don't want them to wake up no you really don't want them to wake up if that's you gonna believe be in that bad. sort of thing if you believe in that sort of thing it's bad news bears if they wake up oh yeah so it's only once we get into the last couple of millennia 
of vampiric history that we start to get on some solid footing as to how vampires kind of more or less organize themselves. So think about, for those of you who aren't history nerds like myself, that's about the time of uh, the Roman Empire in Europe. So from that period on, we have a little bit better of an idea of how vampires organize themselves. And most of it was just very loose collections of vampires around a city. And why would they be around a city, John? Well, that's where the people are, Jen. A hunter follows the food. Exactly. And you have to think at this time period in most of Western history, and I can, because of the nature of how the books are written, uh, and Vampire the Masquerade is a game, most of it centers on Western history, I'm going to be honest. But because of the nature of, of Roman Empire, most people were going to be found in cities and they're not a lot of cities i mean there just wasn't so you don't find a lot of enclaves of vampires but where there's a city there are groups of vampires and these conclaves were sort of self-sustaining they had to figure out how to deal with the fact that this is an area where multiple vampires are going to be congregating because that's where all the food is so how do you deal with, you know, a city where you have 10 to 20 vampires all in one space, all vying for the same resources, all wanting to have a piece of the action, and only a few of them want to be the big head honcho in charge? How do you do? How do you deal with that? You form a, or an organization. You try to come to an understanding. It usually kind of boiled down to one or two very powerful vampires just kind of taking over and then everyone kind of agreeing on a set of traditions that were there to keep everybody safe or keep that person in power, however you want to look at it. Well, that was going to be my question with all this is that if it took so long for these sort of groups to form between, let's say, the flood yeah. And also up until the second millennia or the Roman Empire. Yeah. What was the society like? Was it the system of essentially vampiric monarchies with their underlings? From what we can understand, and if you kind of take the Dark Ages uh, in Europe as a model, I mean, I would argue, uh, yeah. I mean, we, we know of certain vampiric societies in Rome and Carthage in Jerusalem, some really ancient cities where it was basically you had one or two very powerful vampires. Maybe you had uh, an enclave of a particular clan. Uh, Carthage, for example, is famous for being the enclave of the Bruja, while Rome was much more the venture in the Malkavians. And they kind of set up shop and... They were the ones who decided on how things went. You had one very powerful leader, and maybe they had a group of advisors, and it was kind of their say. They created the rules, and they created the traditions. And if you wanted to be a vampire who was living in their city, you had to pony up and do what they said, or they would just kill you. And there wasn't really anything you could do about it. Well, I guess if you have the biggest stick, you know, you, you kind of listen to that guy. Well, yeah. And this pretty much is the norm 
we see as we go through the dark ages and the middle ages is that the powerful vampires can lay claim to an area less powerful vampires end up being pulled to those areas because there's resources there but then they have to kind of kowtow to the more powerful vampire who is in that area because if they don't then they're not allowed to stay well i I guess that makes sense, especially if you don't have anything else better at the time. Well, exactly. And you have to remember, too, at, at this time, human populations kind of ebbing and flowing, and there's a lot of shifts. In the last two millennia, I mean, few people, I think, realize the level of shifting and changing that has gone on with human populaces. And va- vampires are very susceptible to that, because that's your food source. So... You know, when you had a Roman Empire and you had the growth of cities, things were great and you could have more vampires and everybody could just figure out how to run their stuff however they wanted. But when you have the barbarian hordes coming in from the Central Europe and Central Asia and they come sweeping through the place and tearing shit up, well, now that also disrupts vampiric order. And then... Once society hits a lull and the cities start to decrease, now vampiric society also has to shift for that. And so this brings even more of a consolidation of power into the hands of a few because they're the ones who are able to keep things in line when all the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And you see that very much in the Dark Ages. This is when we start getting into the idea of the city-state amongst vampires, of the of the vampiric lord or a vampiric prince, someone who is controlling a singular region. Often it was a region, because you got to remember, this is not a time period when you had these huge megacities like we have right now. It is, a city may only be 30,000 people, and that's not enough to feed multiple vampires. But you may have someone who controls an entire region, uh, maybe even an area as big as a modern nation state. And they would control this territory, and everyone who lived in it, they may have a village in that territory, but they're all beholden to that one person who controls all of it. That's a lot to think on. Uh, But you brought up the notion of control and the Dark Ages, so that brings up the question of the rise of the power of the church. How does that affect it? Uh, well, that's not, good, that's not good times for vampires. Um, so as most of you know, uh, the church begins its own slow, slow ascent into power as the Roman Empire is beginning to fade. Uh, in fact, the church is part of why any piece of the Roman Empire survived, particularly in the West, in Western Europe. And so because they become sort of the de facto cultural framework for humanity when you have all this other crazy bonkers stuff going on, they start gathering a lot of power and they start converting a lot of people. All those barbarians who just came in and started tearing shit up, well, hey, if we convert them into Christians, then suddenly they're going to settle down and behave themselves. And the church becomes sort of that framework that no matter 
who you are or where you come from, at least you all are, are Christians. And to be a Christian means that you hate evil and want to do good. And what are what's evil? Well, evil is people like vampires. Vampires are pretty darn evil if you ask the church. Well, sure, they've got the human flock to worry about. And if their human flock starts dying off, Exactly. Vampires, by their nature, everything the church doesn't like. They hide in shadows. They have they have powers nobody can explain. Um, if you believe certain legends about vampires, they're apparently damned. There's a lot, and, and they're a threat to human the human populace that the church sees itself as protecting. So, yeah, pretty much vampires are not high on their list of, of critters they don't like. However, vampires aren't the only ones they don't like. They're not, they're pretty much not keen on werewolves, on mages, on fae, anything that's like not in their little worldview, they're not particularly happy with. The vampires are pretty high up on that list. And the more power that the church has in human society, the more of a threat they start posing to vampires. And this is where we start hitting the Inquisition. And it's at this point, more than any point, I think that is the most, has the most effect on vampiric history. Because it's the Inquisition that leads to the basic conflicts that create vampiric sects. Right. The idea of, what is it, if you have a central threat, you have to figure out a way to survive because you what you can't openly combat it is that what they were thinking well there's a lot of things going on uh the late medieval period and, and this is where i'm going to get a little history history professor on you um so the late medieval period coalesced in a lot of bad stuff just going on in europe and again i'm focusing on europe because the game itself is really focused on europe so in the Middle Ages, you saw uh, the human populace explode, and you're getting more cities, and uh, vampires are starting to get fat and happy. They're like, hey, this is kind of nice. It's, it's boom time for us. You know, they are, they're, they are now the lords and masters of all these domains. And when you have that much power and things are going that gangbuster for you, you get a little careless. And vampires were getting careless. They were embracing people because, hey, we have population for it, so let's embrace. What's what? What does it matter if I embrace five people? I like them. Maybe I'll keep them around for a while. So they're embracing people. They're starting petty wars with each other, and they're not really doing a lot to hide it from the humans. Um, they are up to all sorts of shenanigans and the humans in the dark ages of course this is a much more superstitious time so they're all like well bat all the bad things are happening are these existential threats from things like vampires and they and humans will only put up with so much of that you know a little bit they're like ah it's freaky but what can you do but after a while, they're like, no, I'm sick and tired of creepy vampires doing the creepy thing and making my life miserable. I want to take them out. So this is where they start turning to the church a little bit. Vampires were starting to act with alarming impunity. 
on top of all this carelessness on the vampire's part, is you now start seeing a shift between, a, a growing divide between older vampires and younger vampires. Because in the middle of all the shenanigans, older vampires are using younger vampires as their pawns. So humans are now starting to get pissed off at vampires. Young vampires are starting to get pissed off at older vampires. And so this is starting to create a perfect storm of just people not happy with each other that is only made worse by the fact that we are now hitting a period in human history where there is a little ice age, which means that there are no crops, which means no one's eating. Now populations are starting to shift and decline. Oh, wait, now there's the plague. The Black Death comes in at this time period from Asia, cleans out uh, anywhere from a third to the half uh, to a half of the populations of cities from Asia to Europe. So imagine you're a vampire who's just embraced by childer. You've been having war with your next door neighbor, and now you're the humans that you've been feeding off of have no food. They're all dying of disease, and there's human grief and catastrophe wherever you look, and they're not very happy with the situation and they're pissed at you the vampire this is this is all leading to badness that all makes a lot of sense because as you said in this point in time all the humans are having a you know a shit storm of bad stuff happen to them they turn to the church and yes. of course the church with their want for power looks at those careless vampires and points to and says hey look they're evil. They're the cause of all this stuff. Let's go get them. Yeah. I mean, the church is, as a scholar of, of Christian history, I know one thing. The church is really big on finding ex existential reasons for internal angst. And, you know, it's always about someone else. Something else is causing the bad shit to happen. Our crops are failing. People are dying of the plague. Obviously, it's God's punishment on us because there is evil in our midst oh look there are vampires who are not being very good about keeping their shit under wraps so let's go get those guys and next thing you know it's straight up like gaston and beauty and the beast and they're storming the castle this starts threatening the vampiric way of life yeah i i can imagine of just a bunch of mortals you know humans getting together with almost a holy edict from the church saying hey i'm a good hunter you're a good hunter let's go hunt these vampires let's find those those agents of the devil and track them down and, and just just kill them get rid of them maybe then god will see how righteous we are yeah and it sometimes they didn't even say they were vampires sometimes they just said look there's a bunch of heretics hanging out in this mountain in france somewhere uh, let's go for hunt those guys. Oh, it, it turns out that those heretics hiding out in that mountain France might just be vampires. Yeah. You know, it was a lot of shenanigans like that. And because of that, the church started creating what it called the Inquisition. Now, in modern real life, if you know, we all know the Inquisition was partly to roust out heretics and partly to roused out supposed witches but in the world of darkness the inquisition also was hunting down supernaturals primarily of which were vampires because vampires 
were the more obvious threat to humanity. Right. And so you would, within that Inquisition, you would have, for lack of a better word, professional hunters armed with power of God. Yes. And they would take their, their faith and their and everything they've learned and go track them down. They would find their havens, their place of rest. And, and even with bumbling amateur hunters, they were a big threat. Exactly. So... You kind of alluded to it a little bit. There were more than just the church. There was the church hunters who often brandishing their true faith and the will of God and going down and hunting down the evil. There's also just plain old mortal hunters. They weren't necessarily associated with the church. Often they were just people who were sick and tired. They were just sick and tired of all the mess. They're sick and tired of the monsters. They're sick and tired of the threats. And they went and took matters into their own hands. And so those were the type who usually were like, I've heard all the legends and the stories and the fairy tales, and I'm going to go hunt these guys down. And the church was a little bit more organized. They had, they had their own hunters who, you know, often these were holy men, some women, and they became, they quickly became very organized and in becoming organized they became very mobile and very threatening and so for the vampires now they had to deal with the fact that there are now humans who are openly not only defying them they're hunting them down and they're coming to get them right so when you've got as you said before the elders thinking that they can just throw their young vampires these neonates at the angry mob and think that that'll satisfy them. What happens? Do the neonates turn around and start pointing to the humans and saying, Hey, Hey, look, no, there's, there's the even he's even bigger than me. I am. Well, I mean, this creates a certain sense of chaos amongst vampiric society. You're right. The older vampires are like, well, this is bad. Well, how about I throw my young, my five newly embraced vampires who don't know no better. How about I throw them at the hunters and hope that appeases them or at least distracts them long enough for me to peace out and get out of the situation. Right. But what happens when that neonate is tired of being cannon fodder? Exactly. The neonates are like, hey, wait a minute. What? You know, why am I? The, why are we the ones who are getting hunted down? So this is creating a lot of conflict between the elders and the neonates and the neonates start banding together and scheming with each other to try and get these elders removed because they, first of all, the elders have all the power. The elders are the ones who've been bossing them around and now they're using them as cannon fodder. Bunk that noise. They're out. And so they start banding together and uprising against the elders who have all the power this kind of makes an already bad situation worse because now not only do you have hunters looking for you, but your own vampire children are also rising up against you. And sometimes they're turning the hunters onto the elders and vice versa. And if they're not doing that, then they're, they're the ones hunting you. It's got, it's, it's all wild west hunky dory cray cray. Right, and this leads to what becomes known as the First Anarch Revolt. Exactly. So the First Anarch Revolt is, is the term that they give to this period because you have these young vampires who are basically throwing off the traditions of vampire society, what little they were at the time, and they said, we do not have to listen to you. 
we are going to create a society where everybody's equal and we're not going to be your cannon fodder. That The idea of respect for your elder and fealty to your elder and the strict adherence to the traditions of your bloodline that had gone on for time out of mind for most of these vampires, right out the window. It's almost like the, uh, the summer of love for the younglings. Never trust anybody over 30 years old as a vampire. Yes, the Anarchs were um, slightly more violent hippies. Yeah, there you go. Slightly more violent. I think there's a few, a little less uh, uh, drugs and free love involved too. Uh, <laughs> it, it was definitely, I mean, in in a lot of ways, I think like the '60s is kind of sort of. It's not a great analogy, but there is a lot of of analogy you can find in there where there is this conflict between the older generation and the newer generation um, and the two sides not agreeing yeah that was very much the anarch revolt and this is all happening in the midst of the inquisition hunting all of them and the anarchs because the inquisition's hunting them because it is so dangerous and because they aren't as powerful as the elders they do begin banding together in these packs um, and creating their own family bonds almost. Vampires, vampire society for the, so long have been built on this sire-child relationship and with the elders having control over the neonates. And they're throwing that structure overboard and they are creating their own families of other vampires who are neonates like them and bringing them together and... And it's, it's almost like, you know, in the 1960s, you know, people were leaving their mom and dad and going and living on the commune. It's kind of a not dissimilar idea of these younger vampires banding together in groups and family units that were not the traditional ones for vamp- for vampires up to this point. Okay, so you've got all these old elder vampires and I'll have to contend with this. What do they do? How do, how do they come to some sort of resolution? Well, the older vampires, they realized, I mean, first of all, they found this whole anarch revolt as an affront. <laughs> of course they did. But, and, and this conflict raged for a long time. It was years and years of this. But the older vampires quickly realized it wasn't sustainable. Uh, if we keep doing this, then the, the Inquisition's just going to keep looking for excuses to, to come and hunt us down. Because all these conflicts between young vampires and old vampires were ju- it was just underscoring the vampiric situation for the Inquisition. And the older vampires realized we need to act quickly in order to protect ourselves. And we want to protect ourselves in such a way that the Inquisition will not be coming after us, that we can hide from the Inquisition and have accountability to each other against the Inquisition at the same time, we want to keep to protect and keep our old traditional pathways of power that we've always had. They don't want to give that up. And so in uh, 1493, they get all together in, in uh, England and they get all sides to the table, Anarchs, Old Guard. They get them all to the table and they have a discussion to try and end open hostilities between the young vampires who are revolting and the old vampires who are like, we don't want to give up being in charge. And so many of the old guard vampires and those loyal to the old guard vampires 
formed a coalition of of clans essentially and they were going to work together in friendship and in close association to be able to create a society that protected all vampires in their mind and they called this since it was a it was a a cooperative a friendship arrangement they called it the camaria which camaria means friend and they all agreed that we're all going to work together and we're going to stop attacking the anarchs and the anarchs uh if they agree to it will stop attacking us and so they started making this arrangement and on top of this, there's this one lone clan out here who's also kind of doing their own thing, and that was Clan Asamite. And so they had to get those guys under control, too. So they bring all these people to the party, and all three of these groups, they kind of come together, and they work out a piece, and the Anarchs, they went along with it kind of begrudgingly, and the Asamites were like, uh, bunk this, we don't want any part of it. This kind of left a, a tenuous situation. Uh, the Asmites eventually were brought alongside a, couple, a few years later after some other shenanigans happened. And we'll get more into that when we talk about Clay and Asmite, because there's a whole bunch of shenanigans that happen. But eventually they get them on board. So a peace is brokered between all sides. The older vampires get what they want in the form of the Camarilla. The younger vampires who don't want to participate in the Camarilla, at least agreed that they're not going to be hostile to the Camarilla. And so they create a, a treaty that allows the two sides to at least coexist, even if they don't like each other. And Clan might eventually is put down and, and, and settled. And like I said, we'll discuss that later. But then there are two other clans in all of this who were just not going to be appeased. Now, hold on. What was that agreement? What was that called? The Camry and the Asamites, they came together and made an agreement that was called the Convention of Thorns. The Convention Thorns is the town in England where they had this big meeting and this big discussion. And the convention is basically because you got everybody together in one room and they all talked. So it's the Convention of Thorns. Right. So that's the Comic Con. Yes, it was the first Comic Con. Um, everybody cosplayed as vampires. <laughs> and so at the Convention of Thorns, the old guard who created the Camarilla and the Anarchs, they all came and agreed and said, we aren't going to be hostile to each other. Clan Asamite was not ready to deal. It took another three years before Clan Asamite was brought into negotiations. That brokered that piece was called the Treaty of, T of Tyre. And Tyre being a name of a city in the Middle East. But actually, I'm not certain that's the Tyre they're talking about. But it is the, it is the Treaty of Tyre. It was the one that ended the open hostilities between Clan Asamite and the newly formed Camarilla. But not all was well. Not all was peaceful. Because amongst all those different arguing parties, there's still two clans that were running around amongst the Anarchs who wanted nothing to do with the Camarilla and the Camarilla wanted nothing to do with them. And they were all perfectly happy to be still hostile to each other. And those two clans were Clan La Sombra and Clan Shimase. Those two clans had, in the middle of their Anarch revolting, managed to kill their clan founders, or so they said. The Camarilla wasn't really down on that. They're like, you know... 
that's not something we want to brag about. So uh, we're not really comfortable with you guys being in our like little like tea party. We we don't think that you really belong amongst us. And the Lasombra and Shimase were like, yeah, you know what? Fuck your tea party. We didn't like you anyway. So we're going to go over here and play with our own toys. Those two clans would become the heart and soul of an entire other group of vampires that we will be covering, core group that forms the Sabbat. It, at the end of the day, these initial wars ended up, you know, being resolved. The wars ended, and then vampiric society reorganized itself into something new. The problem is that no one could agree on what that new should look like. And so in modern nights, vampiric society has splintered into different groups. Those groups are often constantly in conflict with one another because they don't agree with each other. They're idealistically different. Now with the formation of these groups, the and the Convention of Thorns, the Camarilla, and the Treaty of Tyre, and you've got the Asamites, the Anarchs, and the uh, the founding members of the Sabbat that say, "Hey, we're going to go play in our other sandbox." Did this? How did did this actually work to help <laughs> keep them safe? Uh, yes, no. I mean, depends on what you mean by safe. Well, like, did the humans stop mobbing up and coming after them? Uh, did the Inquisition stop? Well, it lessened. The Inquisition never really stops. The Inquisition never really goes away. It is not the overwhelming threat to vampires that it once was. And vampiric society eventually does go on. Vampires are, are not hunted out of existence. But the Inquisition's still there, and they're always a threat, and they're always in the back of vampires' minds, especially from anybody who was alive during this time, and quite a few vampires who are elders in modern nights were alive during this time, and they remember, and they are super hyper paranoid of repeating, of history repeating itself. And they are very afraid of the Inquisition and mortal hunters. All the worse because modern society is a lot less uh, insular. And uh, I mean, information flows fast and free in modern society. So that's, uh, that is a danger to most vampires because what they're afraid of more than anything is that humans will catch on that they exist. And what the Inquisition taught them more than anything is that humans are, are not helpless. Humans are not powerless. And if they want to turn on you, they will and they can and they will destroy you. Right. So with the coming of the modern knights and the formation of these groups... They sort and the ending of open hostility. That sort of is where we get the idea that these these superstitions, these legends, sort of faded out of human his memory. They 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 forgot about this. They became scary stories to go around a campfire with. Yeah, as times changed with humans, most of these stories became legends. And honestly, vampires help foster that. What? There are vampires in the world? Oh, that obviously is just myth and legend. Those are fairy tales. Vampires help foster that because they didn't want humans to believe in them. So the more they could obfuscate their existence and hide it, the better. And 
humans just stopped believing that vampires were real. I mean, it certainly helped that right on the tail of the Inquisition came the Enlightenment. And, well, it first came the Renaissance with its, humani- its humanities and its focus on the human rather than the existential as being the center of the universe. And then right after that's the Enlightenment with its scientific revolution. And suddenly we can all explain and reason our way through why the world works the way it does. Human brain, human hubris becomes, comes to the point that humans believe that through understanding and rationale, they can explain everything in the world. And obviously vampires can't exist because human reason and rationale has said that they can't exist. Right, and that's just how the vampires like it. Exactly, and of course we all know vampires helped foster that belief. They're like, yeah, totally. We vampires couldn't exist if humans if humans can't figure out a way for them to exist. Completely, that's the answer. Um, vampires know better though. So with that, that brings us into the modern nights, as you've said. Yes. And so in the modern nights, we really are looking at three main groups of vampires, of vampiric society. Um, Sects. That would be the Camarilla, the Sabbat, and the Anarchs. And they still exist. The oldest of these groups is the Camarilla. And not only are they the oldest, they're the most influential. And the Camarilla, like we said, was uh, formed out of mostly the elders all getting together and saying... If we don't band together, then we're all going to fall as individuals. And so they spoke up for each of their clans and said, my clan's willing to step into this relationship if your clan's willing to step into this relationship. And maybe we can get that clan in on the relationship. And so the Camry is made up of eight of the 13 known clans of vampires. And which by itself means that it's fairly powerful most vampires actually will be a part of the camarilla and the camarilla has its own laws known as the traditions then um these are all born out of the same traditions that have kind of had kind of grown and evolved in vampiric society over the centuries and the greatest of these traditions for them is was called the masquerade In fact, that's where the name Vampire the Masquerade comes from. It's the fact that the masquerade is what vampires have to live with with every night. It is hiding who you are as a monster from the rest of human society. Because if you don't hide it, they're going to come and hunt you down. And the Camarilla, being as big and as powerful as it is, it has the most influence. It controls vast sectors of human life. Uh, across cities, across states, across national governments. Um, and it's more or less organized on the old city-state model from the Middle Ages. So pretty much everything that existed from before the Anarch Revolt in terms of vampire society eventually became the model for what the Camarilla would become. Right. So you've got the say the elders usually are running the show, then you've got the ones next down under them, and then you've got lackeys under them. Exactly. And the Anarchs are the second oldest group, vampiric organization. But 
even though they're the second oldest group, they're actually the least organized of all of all the groups. Uh, the Anarchs are born out of those people who rejected the power structure of the Elders, the power structure the Camarilla embraced. And they did not believe in the strict adherence to the laws and the traditions of the Camarilla. I mean, that's the stuff they just rebelled against. So they they believe in a dream of, of equality amongst vampires, a utopian vampiric society where everyone can live their life and, you know, do it the way they want without the heavy hand of an elder prince telling them what to do. It is kind of a little bit of a pipe dream, but it's a pipe dream that has a lot of followers. You know, it's it's sort of the hippie pipe dream of in on paper, it sounds great. But in practice, it hasn't worked out nearly as well. But there are many Anarchs out there. They're just people who do not want to live in the Camarilla system. They don't want to necessarily be hunted down, but they also just don't want to have to live under somebody else's rule. Now, do they follow something like the Masquerade as well? Uh, They do. Um, And I think for the same reason the Camarilla does, because they don't want to be hunted down. Uh, But... They aren't subject to Camarilla law the same way that a neonate of Claim Venture would be. Uh, because they live outside the Camarilla, they don't have status in the Camarilla, they don't have, they don't respect Camarilla titles, um, and the Camarilla doesn't have to respect any of their titles. It's, they are not, they're kind of outside of the mainstream Camarilla law. But that being said, there are certain protections Anarchs have. Um, because of the Convention of Thorns and the Treaty of Tear, um, there is a non-aggression pact between the Anarchs and the Camarilla. The Camarilla is not going to go out and and start killing off Anarchs if they're in a city, as long as they're not in the Camarilla-held territories. If they behave themselves, if they don't, breaking the Camarilla laws, if they're not jerk faces, if they just behave themselves, the Camarilla often will just leave Anarchs alone. And Anarchs will just do their thing without trying to piss off the Camarilla. The problems come when one or more of those parties doesn't live up to their side of the bargain. And then you start getting conflicts between the Anarchs and the Camarilla. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, somebody else wants to come mess with your city, and you're like, no, man, this is my city. This is my town. Yeah, like, who the hell are you? And, you know, why are you stepping up in here? Yeah, Elder, psh, I don't care. How old? Whatevs. Yeah, usually an Elder will take a dim view of a neonate who comes in, like, pissing on the carpet. <laughs> They're just not really happy with that, and... That tends to make many an elder just kind of turn a blind eye to that convention of thorns and go, you know, I bet you I can find a loophole in Camarilla law for me to rub out that little pissant anarch right there. It, it happens. It does happen. So now the third group is cannot be confused with the anarchs, though amongst the Camarilla, sometimes there's some conflagration between the two. They tend to like to mix the two of them up. The Sabbat is not the Anarchs, and the Anarchs are not the Sabbat. They are very, very, very different entities. On the surface, people may see them as being the same, but they are completely and totally different. The Sabbat is actually the youngest of the vampiric groups, 
And in many ways, they're probably the most dangerous of the three. Uh, they are formed out of the of Clan Lasombra and Clan Shimasade, the two clans who didn't agree to any of this, to any of the terms, either the Convention of Thorns or the Treaty of Tear, and the Camarilla didn't want them anyway. They are actively outside of both of both the Anarchs and the Camarilla, and they gathered all of those other vampires who didn't want to be held subject to the Convention of Thorns either. So a lot of Anarchs who didn't want to, to agree to the Convention of Thorns simply just joined with the Lasombra and Shimase to create this whole other sect known as the Sabbat. And so those people, those uh, vampires who have rejected the Camarilla uh, and joined the Sabbat are known as anti-tribu, which means they went against their tribe. They went against their clan. Their clan went into the Camarilla, but they joined the Sabbat, and they did it deliberately. They deliberately defied their elders to join this whole other crazy group. And they created these new packs of young vampires. They quickly figured out that if they did uh, a lot of uh, mutual blood bonding with each other, that they create could create a familial kind of bond with each other as as a pact as a pack as a unit and they create an entire new society and culture based off of this concept so the sabbat becomes less focused on elders because we don't like elders we can't trust them and they become more focused on these packs of vampires who have mutually bound themselves to each other for protection and survival. Because of the mystical nature of the rituals they used to try and bind themselves to one another, there was a lot of mysticism got, that got thrown into that. Because essentially how they do it is they're using magic, kind of blood magic to do it. But, you know, blood magic inherently is on in the mystical realm of, of the universe. And because of that, uh, it was heavily influenced by some of the medieval vampiric heresies that were running around at the time. And so all of that, that religious, mystical language and conception got drug into this movement because it, it spoke to this new pack nature that they were developing. And so they actually create a type of religion around these ideas that they were espousing. So these anarchs who defy their elders become something of religious heroes. You know, almost like in Christian mythology, we have the messi the idea of the, the messianic figure these anarchs become their their mythic heroes and Cain himself this mythical founder of the vampires becomes a deity to them praise Cain, Cain. praise Cain praise Cain um he becomes this the ultimate of vampiric rebels who defied God himself and, and created a whole new race of beings out of it so all this gets all jumbled up to create the sect of vampires that is part religious and there's a lot of religious overtures to it it's part religious it's part militant because they are at their 
hearts still anarchs who are rebelling against the elders who tried to to keep them enslaved. So there's a militant aspect of it to fight against those elders because, you know, they are the evil. They are the evil who try to enslave the vampire. But, you know, they are, are the sort of Cain who fights against the, that enslavement of the vampiric soul and you know and and they create this weird quasi uh, this quasi anarch very religious uh sect that it stands in absolute and abject opposition to everything the camaria stands for right on top of that you were saying talking about the religious aspects of it uh, the Sabbat actually preach a sort of freedom from the elders to fight against them and the progenitors. The the word antediluvian comes up. Yes. The progenitors being the vampires who survived the flood. Now that kind of doesn't make much sense to me in the idea that aren't there elders in the Sabbat? There are elders in the Sabbat. They don't like to talk about it that much. But there are elders in the Sabbat, and often these elders are um, pretty quiet about it. They And often they're not found in North America. They're found sometimes in South America, mostly in Europe. And they, um, they tend to be the people who are quietly in, in leadership positions that are outside of public view. So they are not going to be the regents of the sect they're going to be in an other less obvious positions of power in the Sabbat. But there are elders and they do exist. And it's, it does create a dichotomy. And we'll discuss this more as we as we delve into the Sabbat later. This weird dichotomy of how do you have a, a sect of vampires who are religiously anti-elder and you have elders in it? How in the world does that work? How do you... How do you make that work? How? What's the justification behind it? Because you'll find out in the sect in the in the sabbat that elders in the sabbat are pretty nasty business. They are not to be trifled with. Right now, all this talk of anti-elder definitely seems like they would be at odds with the Camarilla. Uh, yes, the sabbat is absolutely at odds with the Camarilla, and in fact almost since the Sabbat's inception, they have been actively fighting against the Camarilla. And the Camarilla and Sabbat have had many, 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 many wars over the centuries. In the last 50 years, they've had an extended series of wars ranging from Europe to South America to Central America to the East Coast of the United States. And the Sabbat has sometimes been triumphant, in the last 50 years or so, they've kind of been on the not-so-triumphant end of that situation. They've they've been taking a lot of hits, and the Camarilla has really been dominating them in a big way. Now, th- these are the three main groups we were discussing in Vampire the Masquerade. Are there any other groups or sects, sects out there? Sects. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, those are the, like you said, those are the three biggies. But there are other groups and organizations out there that are kind of smaller or not as organized that vampires often can choose to be a part of. I think the biggest one that is outside of those three that most people will recognize right off the bat is the independence alliance between 
Clan Giovanni, and, and the followers of Set. So there were a few clans who, when the Camarilla and the Anarchs made their, their big pact, there were a couple clans that just didn't want to be involved. And it wasn't because they had anything against the Camarilla, particularly. They just didn't want to go play ball with them. They wanted to sit on the bench and read a book. You know, the Camarilla's playing in their sandbox, and the Sabat's playing in their sandbox, and they're like, you yeah, know, that's nice. I'm going to sit here and read a book. It's not their circus, not their monkeys. They're just, uh, they're doing their own thing. They're doing their own thing, and they're just not interested in the same games that the Camarilla and the Sabat are playing. Clan Giovanni and the followers set or two of those clans and because they're kind of off doing their own thing and they're not playing with the Camarilla or the Sabat they often just go about their own business sometimes they work together they do have if, if you read by night studios MET book you'll see that they do have an agreement as of that book to work together they just really just don't participate in the larger po- political structure of the other sects. They have their own agendas, and they're busy pursuing their own agendas. They do intersect with those groups on a frequent basis, but they try to be as even-handed as possible when they do deal with those groups, because they're not really interested in their argument. They have their own stuff they're dealing with. So on top of the independent clans... There's this whole other group of vampires who, who I know this is going to shock you, John. There are vampires who live not in Western Europe or any of its colonies. What? Yes. I'm there are vampires shocked that there's gambling is in this establishment, sir, because there are vampires who live in the Middle East and they don't have a society that looks anything like the Camarilla. What are they called? They're called the Ashira, the courts of the Ashira, and they are the vampires of the Middle East. Say almost the same exact clans as you'll find in Europe or any other place that Europe went and colonized. But because there is a cultural divide, they just were divided away from all the conflicts that we just described that happened in Europe. So they have a whole other culture and a whole other society that only come recently into heavy contact with the Camarilla. So it looks very different. It's much more influenced by the fact that these are areas that at one point in time had either been under Roman rule or Muslim rule or even some older rules. You'll find religions in there that haven't been seen in centuries amongst vampires. You know, many vampires are old, and so they still have their old religious practices. There's a lot, and it's very culturally different than the Camarilla. Right, let's worship Zarathustra, just like we used to. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I, I have to say, there's a, there's a lot of fun stuff you could do as a vampire in Zoroastrianism. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> Yeah, so the course of the Ashira are the the vampires of the Middle East. But they're not the only vampires who are non-Western out there. There are also the Liban, who are the vampires of Africa. And again, a lot of these vampires are the same clans that you will find in, in Europe. But it's just a whole different culture and a whole different society structure. 
and they have a very different view of each other and who's in and who's out than the Camarilla does or the Sabat does. And they, it, and it's really fascinating because again, it, you can see how much these wars and these battles and these arguments, these vampires fight tooth and nail over are really just constructs. These are all constructs, and they are the ones who created them. Because you see the Libon and the Shira do it differently than the Camarilla and the Sabat do. Right. A, a vampire anthropologist would have a field day. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm certain Beckett has written oodles and oodles of books somewhere. And here's how they do it in South Africa. And isn't that so weird compared to how they do it in Italy? I think they, even, they did it better. You know, you know, Beckett's got that stuff somewhere. Of course. It's hide, hiding in a library. So there's these different cultures out there that I'm sure for a vampiric sociologist, they are probably just about losing their minds because they're like, wait, you mean this craziness isn't the only way we can look at vampiric culture? Vampires are not known for being very multicultural or thinking very much along global lines. It's just the way they are. Who knows? Who knows what the new century will bring? So in thinking on that, though, I mean, obviously, we've been talking a lot about the Camarilla and the Sabat and the conflicts that they have and the never ending wars between elder vampires and neonate vampires and all the, the games that they play and, and the conflicts. There is a group of vampires out there who have said, you know what? We want nothing to do with this craziness. We're done. We're absolutely done with, you know, all the infighting, the power grabs, the puppeteering. What is known amongst vampires is the jihad. The jihad is the great war between all the different warring factions of different vampires. These vampires have chosen to actively remove themselves from those conflicts. And... They are known, at least in rumor, they're known as the Incanio. And again, I say rumor here because nobody really knows if the Incanio exists or not. It's rumored that they do. If you meet one, chances are pretty high you won't remember it. Or if you do remember it, you'll never see them ever again. Because they don't want anything to do with you. You're still caught up in the middle of this jihad. You're somebody's puppet and pawn somewhere. And they don't want to have a piece of that because they know that that's bad. So they remove themselves from it and they tend to go and hide out by themselves or in groups amongst each other. And they will observe vampiric society, but they won't participate in vampiric society. So they're not quite the men in black. They're, they're more just like an urban legend among vampires. Exactly. They're, they're an urban legend. Most people don't believe that they exist. They're kind of colloquially known as watchers because they do watch vampiric society, but it's not ever shown that they interact with vampiric society. And there's a lot of rumors about what the Incanu are and what they're doing. One of the biggest rumors you'll hear about, if you hear about the Incanu, because again, this is not something you, that people are just going to be bringing up. This is not like every neonate on the street has heard about the Incanu. And if you've heard about the Incanu, chances are pretty high that you're never, ever going to meet one. Uh, some of the rumors that float around about the Inkanu or like they're vampires who've decided that they are going to try and find Golconda, which is this mystical uh, search for the end of your vampiric 
nature, however that works. And no one's really sure how that works. Some say that they are the ultimate puppets of the antediluvians, which, you know, who knows if that's true. Some say they are just like hermits on the side of mountains who are like kind of like bodhisattvas. You go there and they tell you things in deep koans that you cannot understand. And yeah, who knows? Nobody knows what an incondio is. That's how I like to think of them. <laughs> As Buddhist bodhisattvas? Buddhist bodhisattvas. <laughs> That's right. The, the, you know, they try to become one with the mountain. I, being uh, the early Christian historian I am, I, I like to think of them like the desert fathers in Egypt. They go hide out in the desert and, you know, fighting with demons. I don't know. You know, you never know. That's a good story, too. Exactly. But whatever the case, they're more myth and legend for vampires than anything else. You will never probably meet an incognito. The last smaller group of, of vampiric sects, if you will, is a group that is probably just as mysterious as the Incanu, and probably heard of even less than the Incanu. I mean, if you've heard of this group, you are like deep, deep into the vampire tinfoil hat area. This is like vampiric Art Bell, God rest his soul. If you know who this group is, like you have done the deep dive into the vampire conspiracy Kool-Aid, because this group is known as the Tal Mahera or the true black hands. They are kind of, I was laughing the other day, I was like, they are the hydra of, of vampire society. They're vampire death cults, is what they are. And they worship these three truly ancient beings that they believe are antediluvians. They don't know what these beings are. All they know is that they, in the, race, in the land where the wraiths exist, they have managed to find a way into that land and found coffins that they believe have vampires in them that are very old vampires and that they must be antediluvians. And apparently they have some truly ancient, weird, kooky, way out there knowledge. Well, yeah, if they can go into the Shadowlands, I'm sure they come across some crazy stuff that's been long buried. Oh, yeah. I mean, these guys are pretty... Uh, they are kooky dukes. There has been more, there have been religions founded on less, but I'm pretty sure in those three coffins, it's just jelly beans. Probably just jelly beans. Uh, you know, wouldn't that be the, the bitch of it all if after all of this, they finally get those coffins open and it's just jelly beans. And not even blood jelly beans, just regular jelly bellies. Regular jelly bellies, that's right. Some Black elder pepper walks jelly by, bellies. He's like, oh, you found my, uh, guess how many jelly beans are in the coffin? You know that you know Malka pulled that one off. Oh, that's brilliant. That's that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Mystery solved. Mystery solved. Yes. The TMR is so rare that you will never run into these unless they're an NPC in a game. You know, conspiracy theory time when you have TMR around. And I am a big fan of the TMR. I love the TMR. But again, it's 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 not something you will normally run into in a game unless it's a plot point. Same with the Incanu. I'm a big fan of the Incanu, but again, you will not run into it unless it's a plot point. So in any average game, you're only going to run into like the three main groups. Uh, most of the time, you're going to run into either the Cambria or the Sabat or an Anarch. You might probably run into a Giovanni or a Setite. Maybe there might be one or two in a game, but the rest are going to be super, super rare. So I guess for the average player, just kind of 
forget that they exist until maybe someone brings them up in game and then you can just totally just plug that player for like hey what do you mean who is that tell me all about it yeah that's when when if someone ever comes up to you in game and says i am a watcher then you can start frantically looking through your abilities and seeing which one of them will give you information on what the hell a watcher is and if you don't have the right information you will not know it will make no sense to you none whatsoever None whatsoever. Right. So each of these sects, they have their own rules, ideologies, and their own agenda. They've got an end game. Exactly. And each one of them has their own particular goals. The Camarilla's end game pretty much control everything and make sure that the world is safe for the elders and all their minions and they can do whatever they want. Right. Maintain status quo. Let's just keep going as we're going. Isn't this great? Exactly. Well, the Sabbat is like... You know, fuck the elders, let's uh, tear it down, and we'll rule the world. That's right, and if they come back, we'll eat them and keep going. Exactly. At the end of the day, each of these groups is trying to figure out how to survive in the world while keeping on a hold of their own souls. Because at the end of the day, every vampire, that's what they're most concerned about is how to survive and not become the monster that I am. And so sometimes this can prove a little bit more tricky than you would think. And so over the next few episodes, we're going to be actually doing a deep dive into one of these major sects. Right. We're going to be looking at the Camarilla because nine times out of ten, this is going to be the group of vampires you will be playing. Exactly. If you're playing in a LARP, most of the time the LARPs are going to be Camarilla. Yeah. it's And it's no you know secret why they're the easiest for anybody to like walk into as their humanity is so high. They definitely come from a, a more recognizable background for most people. And also, it's very easy to come in as that neonate, that lackey, as a new player, and sort of get lay of the land without having a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And so we're going to try over the next few episodes to discuss the in- intricacies of the various relationships, good and bad, that come with living in the so-called ivory tower that is the Camarilla. Um, we're going to be covering Camarilla Law with just kind of important we're gonna have an st quarter where we're going to be discussing status and boons which is a huge aspect of kind of working in the world of the camarilla and uh and then we're gonna do what john's been itching to do since the beginning of this podcast itching itching we're going to be looking at the eight camaria clans finally i know this is what everybody's chomping at the bit for but jen and i talked about this and she was right she was right (laughs) if anybody comes into this game brand new these are this is a lot of groundwork that we need to be laid so you're not overwhelmed by any of this stuff yeah i mean it's great to know, hey, I'm a Bruja, but if you don't know what a character she looks like, or hell, what the Camarilla is, you're going to be floundering. And we don't want you floundering. We want you to be happy and walk in here and be like, hey, I can go toe-to-toe with that person over there who's a nerd who's been playing this since 1993. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's even happened to me that I walked into a... I've been playing for a few years, but I'd walked into a brand new game with a brand new character, and I was treated like the new kid. 
exactly. Because it's like, well, who are you? You don't know anything about this. Blah blah blah. I'm Prince, and and are you? How are you useful? I never did that to you when I was Prince. No, 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 no. It, it was never. <laughs> it was never anybody that that you may know. It was with another group. A whole other troop of players that, that will remain nameless. Well, and that does happen. Uh, the whole point of this podcast for the two of us is we're just... It, this is to inform the new player. It's also to kind of refresh the old player. And so we wanted to kind of lay all this groundwork before we even got into these deep dives. So now we're going to be looking at the Camarilla, which, again, one of the most powerful sects. And it comes with its own host of problems. So we're really excited about kind of taking the deep dive into uh you know the ivory tower and seeing all the cray cray that goes on in there that's right and if anybody's a fan of the show called scandal this is a great overlay for that kind of that kind of plot devices yes scandal is a great show to be watching to kind of get a feel for the camaria i also like to throw around game of thrones a lot not just because i love it but because the the heavy politics that goes on in it and a lot of the structure is analogous to the Camarilla. Things like, you know, you have the king and the hand of the king and all the the plotting that goes on behind the scenes and so all the, the shenanigans, not the not the the blood and the boobs, but the shenanigans uh, that go on in Game of Thrones. Great is that's a great primer for politics in the Camarilla. Right. So if, as long as you take Scandal, you take Game of Thrones, you you think of these people as vampires, boy, does it really, you know, just sort of take it up a notch. Yeah. House of Cards. House of Cards is another great show for the Cambria. If you wanted to start prepping, these are all shows. We're just throwing these out there because start watching these shows and start getting your head wrapped around like these, this high level cutthroat politics. Yeah. Welcome to the Cambria. But don't worry if you're a little bit more action-minded. There's still plenty of that. You've got, you know, the law keepers, the assassins. There is there's something for everybody, let me tell you. Exactly. So we hope that as we go through the Camarilla, you'll, you'll get to know it a little bit better. We hope that we make it a little less scary. And you come to embrace it because there's a lot of fun that can be had running around in the, sex of, in the halls of the ivory tower. Absolutely. Uh, at this part of the podcast, we're going to give you our book list, our reading list for the, this episode. Yes. So I'm just trying to think through some of the books that would be uh, most useful to you if you're like, hey, I really want to read up a little bit more on some of the stuff that they were mentioning. I highly recommend everyone, no matter what, if you're playing a vampire, you go pick up a copy of Guide to the Camarilla and Guide to the Sabbat. Those two books tell you almost everything you need to know on how each of these different groups works, what their ideology is, like how they're structured, you know, all, all the things you, you need to know to make it in, in playing either the Camarilla or the Sabbat. Uh, but there's also some other books out there that kind of speak to some of the other sects that we have that we discussed today. Right, I think uh, Veil of Night, I believe, talks about the Courts of Ashira. Yeah, Veil of the Night is the Courts of the Ashira. And then Kindred of the Ebony Kingdom or the Laiban. Yes. What? Who's Layer of the Hidden? What? What book is that? Layer of the Hidden is about the Inkanu. Aha. Uh -huh. And yes, Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand One and Two. 
There's DSBH is like one of my favorite crack books. The first one. I loved it so hard. Go read it. it it's not an easy read. I'm going to just say it. Neither the first or the second is easy reads, but um, they kind of show you the crazy that is the TMR. So go read Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand. You'll see why I call them the Hydra of the World of Darkness because <laughs> they're very, very, it's this whole weird death cult vibe. I don't know. <laughs> You're like, how does this even make sense? What do you mean that's aliens? You know? So summer's coming, you know, when you go to the beach, a little light reading. Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand. Yeah, exactly. Those are just fun books to read. I mean, if you're a new player walking in the door, by no means does anybody expect you to be reading, like, DSBH or Lair of the Hidden. You know, that's some deep dive vampiric lore there. So you really don't need to read that walking in the door. It's helpful to read Guide to the Camarilla or Guide to the Spot, depending on the game you're going into. But the rest of these are much more just for your edification and, you know, if you're interested in knowing more, like um, reading Rainbow to know more, here are some books you can read. Excellent. We're going to we're going to put that in there. <laughs> so, yeah, we hope this has enlightened you a little bit more about Vampire Society, kind of how it works, the pitfalls it faces. And as we continue, we'll be covering all the others. Camarilla we're covering first because it's the most prevalent, but we're hoping to definitely hit the Sabata. up. That's going to be fun. Oh, yes. Praise game. Praise game. So we look forward to going on this journey with you. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please tune in next week for the next one. Like Jen said, we're going to be discovering the deep dive of the Camarilla and finding out the hallowed halls of the Ivory Tower. Till next time. Till next time. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you would like to reach us after our normal podcast hours, we can be reached on Facebook at Podcast by Night, on Twitter at By Night Podcast, or at our email at podcastbynight at gmail.com.